Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. I hope you're well. Today's episode features Louise Haig, the Shadow Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. So as you can imagine, we had a lot to talk about following the week where the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Brandon Lewis, admitted that the government is going to, in a specific and limited way, effectively break international law. Um, So we talk about that. Um, There's a whole load of surprises in here. Louise had been a special constable uh, a few years ago before becoming an MP. She'd also considered a very different career path. I don't want to ruin the surprises that are contained in this interview because there's quite a few of them and she also uh, had a job working for the greatest football club in the world so um this is a uh, this is a chat full of uh yeah surprises and treats um now i should say at the start as well um i have a book out which you may have heard me plug in on previous episodes you can pre-order a signed copy from blackwells uh, it's available to pre-order now it's out on the 8th of october uh, so i've put a link in the blurb to this where you can pre-order that um i've recorded the audiobook now so that's available through audible and amazon and those types of places um and there's another piece of news um which uh, i would have wanted to do more of these podcasts during lockdown but obviously i had a book to write uh, and today um i've been allowed to tell you um that i'm working on the new spitting image on one of the writers and i'm voicing a few of the puppets um which ones they are will be announced at a later date um but i announced it on twitter and um i know it's basically just bragging to you but i thought this audience, Spitting Image, should be right up your street. Um, so I, I thought I'd better let you know. <laughs> um, so there you go. Um, that's that's partly why I haven't done as many podcasts during lockdown as I would have liked to have done. 
and because I've been working on Spitting Image and writing a book, and uh, you can you can buy the book, and um, you'll be able to see Spitting Image on BritBox uh, from I think the third of October. Um, anyway, that is enough rampant, selfish self promotion. Um, this is a real treat of an episode. It's a brilliant chat, and also there's just as well as the real politics of it and the personal stuff, just some really good stuff about party conferences and because obviously they're not happening this year. Um, that kind of side of politics. Um, I began by asking Louise, who's only been an MP for five years and has already had to stand in three general elections uh, and is already in the Chateau Cabinet. It's remarkable that the era that we're living in. Um, but I began by asking Louise whether she saw this announcement that the government was going to break the law, uh, whether she saw it coming. No, and nobody did. You know, a friend texted me yesterday and said, I feel like whenever you get given a new brief, it just really kicks off. And I was like, yeah, sorry, Northern Ireland. Um, but, you know, the people of Northern Ireland certainly didn't see it come in. We didn't. The EU didn't. And when we saw it briefed in the papers last weekend, um, we thought that maybe this was a sort of slight, you know, strongman negotiating tactic, that this was only just putting feelers out there. But what we've seen in terms of what the government is actually introducing this week, it's the most extreme interpretation. And then, of course, we hear the Secretary of State, Brandon Lewis, just casually dropping into um, the House of Commons this week to confirm, yes, we're breaching international law, but only in a technical and limited specific way. Um, it's just absolutely extraordinary. And I don't think they can really appreciate the potential consequences of their actions because it is incredibly destabilizing and only makes the chances of any deal and actually finally getting Brexit done completely um, less likely. So just on the detail then, this specific and limited way that they're going to break the law, what will it entail and what, what will the implications of it be? So you're absolutely right when you say, you know, we negotiated and, and debated Northern Ireland and the issues around Northern Ireland at length through the Brexit negotiations. So people will feel um, rightly um, that we've you know, gone back in time to kind of 2017 through this, because the whole reason we have the protocol in place is to avoid that hard border or any border indeed on the island of Ireland. And um, when we were debating around Theresa May's deal, we talked about, you know, alternative arrangements, technological solutions. Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg at one point suggested we could return to inspections just as we had during the Troubles, were his exact words. Um, all of that was rightly dismissed because, of course, we don't want a border um, between the Republic and uh, Northern Ireland because that's the very fundamentals of the Good Friday Agreement. And so that's why Boris Johnson went and negotiated the protocol protocol uh, last October with the European Union and at the time he called it and this is a direct quote very very ingenious um, so that was in place in order to make sure that goods entering Northern Ireland um, and had any risk of entering the single market through the EU could be properly checked that the EU could preserve the integrity of the single market um, and that people could carry on living their lives north, south, east, west, as is the very basis of the Good Friday Agreement. You know, that protocol was negotiated with the EU. It was campaigned on in the general election. It was legislated for in Parliament earlier this year. In May, Michael Gove said it preserved the peace and progress um, since the Good Friday Agreement. Last month, Boris Johnson was in Northern Ireland and he gave um, Northern Ireland £350 million, that figure sounds familiar, doesn't it, um, to uh, prepare for the protocol. And suddenly, this month, 
it breaches the Good Friday Agreement and it's worth breaking international law for. I just don't know what's changed in the last couple of weeks. So do you think they were always going to have to do this? Or is this something they've realised late? So I think the problem is um, that no, they didn't have to do it because that, that has been agreed with the European Union and its implementation is necessary in, in order to secure a deal. So they have to implement it in order to make sure that we get that free trading arrangement with the European Union. I think the problem is that they promised the ERG and their backbenchers that they wouldn't implement it. Uh, and now the chickens are coming home to roost and they're saying, hang on a minute, we voted for this on the basis that you were never going to implement it. And we never wanted to see it in practice. Um, so at the 11th hour, it's got to be unpicked. And, 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 and what this will mean materially for the, the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic, does this mean then the, the whole debate around the hard border resurfaces? Exactly. Uh, if, you know, if you're removing checks east-west, i.e., Great Britain going into Northern Ireland, then you have to think about the border north-south again. Um, the whole point is that the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic now serves as the main entry into the European Union. So the European Union has every right to protect that border. Um, and they had negotiated that the border could be shifted to between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. Remove that, it goes back to between north-south. And, you know, there's huge practical difficulties around that. It's the biggest... Uh, land border in the European Union. It's got um, uh, well over 200 crossings, which is more than the whole um, border um, uh, of the EU has to its east. Um, it, so it's incredibly <laughs> complicated to instigate checks. But of course, um, you know, it does, as I say, underpin the whole um, basis of the Good Friday Agreement and w would be a flashpoint um, and a, a potential for violence if we if we return that debate there that's exactly why we have the protocol in the first place so odd that a party that has rediscovered its full title of the conservative and unionist party basically in the last three or four years now seems to be so not hell-bent but seems to be so cavalier about the implications for the union not just in scotland as we've seen throughout covid and other issues but but specifically with ireland i mean yeah, they, I think... they must know that the, the implications of this are so severe I, I mean, I, I think so. And as you say, I, I think there are those that are, are realising the implications here um, will extend to Scotland as well. You know, they, they don't want to be the government that oversees the, the final breakup of the union. And that is that is what's on the table here. I don't think it's an over overstatement to suggest that, um, you know, the polls are suggesting in Northern Ireland that, um, that a, you know, a border poll would be more um, more popular um, on the basis of Brexit and if, the, if, if it hurts Northern Ireland um, as people expect it to. So the government and the way that they've proceeded, and particularly in riding so roughshod over the devolved assemblies and devolved nations, has only pushed them further away. And, and it's been really interesting to see actually um, in Northern Ireland how much support the executive has um, in terms of dealing with covid and responding to covid rather than westminster there's a lot more, uh, there's a lot more support for their devolved assembly than there is for the westminster government and with this um specific and limited however you want to interpret it but <laughs> the definite break in the law does that necessarily mean a hard border between northern ireland and the republic or is there an outcome where that can still be avoided yeah so 
the, the, the point the point is is that this is all completely unnecessary um, ratcheting up of tensions this week um, they carried on the negotiations through what's called the joint committee between the European Union and the UK government and it was fully expected that this week they would come to agreement on these issues of state aid and exit summary declarations not insignificant um, matters in the grand scheme of things but certainly not insurmountable so it just didn't make any sense that ahead of those negotiations they would announce that they were unilaterally legislating to undermine them um, and making agreement far less likely so it still could happen that they could reach agreement and the protocol is therefore implemented and any reopening of you know wider issues around the border um, are avoided but the government have just made it so much less likely that that happens. And I can't, for the life of me, understand why they've done that. Because watching them this week, when I had my urgent question in the Commons, I half wondered whether they thought that they were putting us in a trap again and making us reopen wounds against Brexit. But that just wasn't the case at all. It was only the Tories that were tearing themselves apart again. And indeed, the first person to stand up after me in the Commons was Theresa May, when she said, you know, you've breaking international law how can anyone ever trust the uk government ever again um, in entering treaties or multilateral arrangements and she's absolutely right why would anyone trust us when we can't even agree with ourselves um secretaries of state and shadow secretaries of state have pragmatic relationships where they share information documents um what's your relationship with brandon lewis like um <laughs> Uh, I, I mean, Brandon and I, um, it's a, do you know what, when, you, when it's Northern Ireland, okay, so neither of us stand in Northern Ireland, neither Labour or the Tories stand, so there's no electoral advantage um, in, in the same way as there normally would be in, yeah. in normal briefs and briefs I've had in the past. Um, so in theory, um, we should be able to sit down together and, and work things um, out, uh, out together. We do to an extent, um, but I think, I mean, on this, I felt I did feel sorry for him because I think he was just sent out to do the bidding of of number 10. I half wondered whether he'd read out something he wasn't meant to read out when he did admit to breaching international law. I don't know. I don't know whether they'd sent him out deliberately to do that or whether he'd read out the wrong bit. And, you know, again, the motivation for all this is still completely baffling to me because it is so reckless and it's as harmful to them personally as it is to the country. Um, but to admit that, you know, they're breaching the rule of law, it's just so fundamentally un-British as well. You know, Britain is really known around the world for keeping its word and, and upholding the international rule of law, and we are trusted for it. And, you know, Lisa Nandy, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, has made this point several times. How can we hold other governments to account, like, as we want to, like Russia, China, Iran, for breaching their international obligations? when we so casually admit to breaching ours. You quoted Margaret Thatcher to him over the dispatch box, which was... Um, I know, I really enjoyed it. It's a great move. <laughs> what was the reaction like? I know, the, I know the Commons is fairly sparse these days, but what was the reaction like on the Tory benches? There were lots of uncomfortable faces, definitely. Um, I mean, there's, there's a real, as, as always in the Tory party, there's a real split. You know, there's, there's the ERG lot that don't think this goes far enough and will attempt to amend it even further next week. Um, and then there's the sort of traditional One Nation Tories who are just absolutely horrified because this is at the very heart of what being a Conservative um, comes to. It's upholding the rule of law, it's respecting institutions, and they're watching Boris Johnson and those around him in number 10 trashing it all. And I think it's making them really, really uncomfortable. Um, and 
yeah, I, I mean, it's the first time I've ever quoted Margaret Thatcher, and I don't intend to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> but she was right that Britain shouldn't renounce our treaties because it damages our integrity and it damages our international relations. And that, as I say, is, I hope is the one and only time I ever say that she's right uh, on well, anything. Well, the government's leading lawyers, Jonathan Jones, resigned a couple of days ago as well. Yeah. Possibly uh, related to this. It sounds like it was. I mean, this isn't just a Labour Tory row, is it? That there are senior people in the UK government who advise the UK government who find this untenable as a position. Totally. Um, as I say, you know, there are lots and lots of Tories that are deeply uncomfortable about this. And when Brandon Lewis and, and others were trying to defend it as a kind of um, wrapping up of legal loose ends and actually legislating in order to put a default position in, that would have been comforting if the um, if the top lawyer hadn't just resigned in direct response to it. And we've seen lots of other um, briefings about other politicians and particularly the legal, you know, law officers um, sounding the alarm and, and, and being really concerned because I just... Uh, you know, it's, it's problematic um, on the international stage, but it, this all just come down to a matter of trust. And if we can't be trusted to keep to our agreements that the Prime Minister promised the British people were, you know, oven ready and, and ready to go on and that we have ratified into international treaties, I just don't know what we can ever be trusted on. And I worry for what, you know, I trust already, already in politicians is at an all time low. I just think you know, this this never sticks with the government alone. I think it harms trust in politics and politicians and our democratic institutions, and it's so, so harmful. You've been Shadow Secretary of State for Northern Ireland since April. Obviously, that whole time really has been blighted by COVID. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you've been able to, to make connections in Northern Ireland in that time over Zoom and, and over the phone and, and maybe perhaps in person. But mm-hmm. Labour's relationship with Northern Ireland has, certainly for the last, sort of pre the last leadership election or the most recent leadership election, quite a lot of focus on what Labour really thinks about Ireland, what Labour's approach would be and what Ireland's response to Labour has been. In the post-Corbyn world, um, what's Labour's relationship like with politicians in Northern Ireland? Well, um, Keir um, served as the human rights advisor to the Northern Ireland Policing Board for six years. Um, so he's worked there. He, he obviously is director of public prosecutions, worked closely with PPS there. Um, and as you saw in Prime Minister's questions a couple of weeks ago, got very, very cross about any allegations um, of, uh, of, of kind of uh, being associated with, with terrorists there. You know, he has a very strong track record and he's very popular with politicians across um, the, the the communities and the and the divides there, and that's been very clear. And and, and he and I wrote um, a joint piece in the Belfast Telegraph a few um, a few months ago. Now, time has no meaning in lockdown anymore, does it? A day feels like a year. Um, but uh, yeah, we wrote a joint piece a couple of uh, a couple of months ago, just reaffirming our commitment to the Good Friday Agreement and the Labour Party as uh, neutral an impartial um, party because the Good Friday Agreement is of course one of the greatest achievements of the last Labour government. Um, people didn't think it would be remotely possible to bring peace to the uh, to Northern Ireland and, and, and indeed to Great Britain because right up until the 90s you know we were experiencing attacks and, and threats to our peace and security here and I think there's an entire generation of, uh, of young people in particular, I mean I was only 
2010 when the Good Friday Agreement was signed. There's an entire generation of people that don't appreciate what life was like um, till then and, and as it was being implemented. And actually it was Tony Blair's you know, complete commitment and focus to bringing peace to Northern Ireland and expending huge political capital over several years in order to get that agreed and then implemented. Um, that means Northern Ireland is now in the position it is today. Um, it's not, it's far from perfect. There is still sectarian violence. Um, there are still security issues. There is still a huge amount to be achieved um, and to be implemented from that agreement, but it is unrecognisable from what it was 22 years ago. Sort of interesting political change in Ireland and in Northern Ireland was Sinn Féin getting a third of the votes in the Irish election, um, obviously locked out of the coalition. Um, the SDLP had quite a good Westminster election, Colm Eastwood mm. and Claire Hannah getting elected. I mean, just in terms of, I guess they're you know the closest thing to the Labour Party and, and you know, in times gone by, they'd sit on the same side of the House as the Labour Party um, and do now. Uh, mm. I mean, can you ever sort of imagine a more formal arrangement with the SDLP or or is that sort of... Well, they are our sister party. They, I mean, we, yeah, we, you know, we, we, we regard them as our sister party and we sit with them in, uh, in the Party of European Socialists. I work really closely with, with Claire and Colm and they're brilliant. And I think it's so beneficial to have their voices and the voice of um, Stephen Farry, who's the Alliance MP in Parliament, because prior to that, up until... December 2019 it, you know people felt like or thought that the only voice of Northern Ireland was through the DUP and uh, whilst I also work um, with the DUP and um, you know I try to work um, imp- impartially with uh, with all sides um, it is it is important for the British people to understand and to hear from uh, both sides of, uh, of the argument and I think it is really important that those moderate voices are represented in Westminster. And how do you find handling the politics of Northern Ireland? I mean, I, I guess it's slightly different because you're the Shadow Secretary of State and you're Labour. But still, I mean, it is a really, in terms of the, the parts of the UK where you have to be so delicate about the way you think and, and, and express any sort of opinion, um, Northern Ireland is a really tricky brief to have. Yeah, it's a totally different type of politics. And because I was only elected in 2015, so I've only ever been an opposition politician, I'm used to, you know, going and finding out issues and then elevating them, making a really big fuss about them to try and get them changed um, and to make noise and get them in the media. Whereas in Northern Ireland, um, if there's issues, you're desperately trying to calm them down and negotiate and bring everyone back to the table and keep things out of the media and keep things as um, as minimised as possible. So, um, I, you know, it's been an enormous lesson in diplomacy, which wasn't necessarily one of my strongest um, <laughs> skill sets. Um, but I'm learning, I'm learning quickly. Um, it's, you know, and you've also got to be so um, aware. I mean, I, my family are originally from the Republic, so I was very aware of Irish history and and of um, and of, of the troubles and uh, of uh, of the sensitivities. But there's still so much to learn. I've been getting, you know, reading every book I could get my hands on, and uh, I'm still just so conscious that there's enormous gaps in my knowledge. But I have been over, as you say, I was um, I was able to kind of meet basically everyone in Northern Ireland, I think, over Zoom um, since, since, being, um, since being appointed. But um, I did get over for a full week at the end of July 
um, and uh, going again in, in a couple of weeks' time. Um, I just really wanted to make sure, I gave it a little bit of time to get over there because I wanted to make sure I could get over and meet real people and meet actual community groups rather than just going and having kind of socially distanced meetings with the politicians. And young people, I think, you know, young people are so unrepresented and underrepresented by the political institutions there and they feel really frustrated that all the issues that they want to raise, climate change, mental health, um, in the future of the economy, are all drowned out by sectarian um, um, sectarian divisions all the time. That's what's always gets reported on, and that's what always kind of distracts from the issues that they want raising. Do you think that's even more true there than it is in other, you know, every other corner of the UK? That that's particularly true in Northern Ireland. Oh, definitely. I mean, because there's mandatory power sharing, um, you know, it's it's incredibly difficult. It is incredibly difficult for them to govern. Um, and so there are always going to be these tensions between different departments and, and it's more difficult to plan for the long term. Having said that, I think, you know, they've done remarkably through COVID. I think, you know, Arlene and Michelle seem to get on really well and work really effectively together and they put those differences aside um for the good of uh, for the good of northern ireland and to respond to the emergency so it shows that it it can be done and i hope that those you know that that those kind of practices and the way that they've done that continue as you mentioned you got elected in 2015 so you've only been an mp for about five years mm-hmm. less than oh no five years over five yeah, years i sort of yeah. forget what month it is yeah so you've had three general elections you've shadowed secretary of state for northern ireland you feel like You've been around a while in politics now. You're like you're a fixture on telly and as part of Labour's top team. But in any other time, really, you'd have only served one term. No, it's nuts, isn't it? I thought that because I ran Lisa and Andy's leadership election. And I remember thinking at the time, like, God, it's ridiculous. I'm not experienced enough to run a leadership election. And I thought, well, hang on, Rebecca and Keir were elected at the same time as me and they're running for leader. So, <laughs> yeah, it's been, um, it's been a really, really... Um, uh, steep learning curve the last five years and we were th- I mean I was on the front bench um, in the September after being elected in the May so I've been on the front bench for almost as long as I've been elected and uh, yeah we've had the referendum we've had three leadership elections in that time as well as three general elections um, and now dealing with with COVID as well so it, we've had to yeah we've definitely had to learn on the job um, I don't know I, I, I don't know whether you know everything that we're getting wrong is as a result of that <laughs> but, uh, um it's been uh, yeah yeah and i think but what's interesting now with the shadow cabinet is actually there are a lot of colleagues in there from the 2015 intake it's quite a it, it brings together a good a good mix of that um experience and the kind of fresh faces that didn't necessarily get um get the kind of prominence or the promotion over the last five years and how does you, you served under jeremy corbyn and under keir starmer how does their style of leadership differ? How does the Shadow Cabinet feel different under Keir to, to what it did under Jeremy? Uh, well, I wasn't in the Shadow Cabinet under Jeremy. I was a, shadow, I was a junior Shadow Police Minister. So, I've no, uh, so this is the first time I've been in the Shadow Cabinet, but it feels um, much more um, collegiate, much more thoughtful, um, much more discursive. I think it's much easier to kind of feed issues up and get them debated. And the decision-making seems to be uh, much more collegiate. Uh, than anything I experienced before, um, you know, under under Jeremy, we were given lines to take, and if we didn't like them, there wasn't really much um, we could do about them, and we'd go out and try and deliver them in the best best way we could. Um, but it wasn't, you know, you didn't feel part of a team really, and you didn't feel able to debate or that there was any real um, real opportunity. You know, as I say, I was on the front bench for four and a half years, and 
I can count on one hand the number of conversations of any real meaning that I had with Jeremy. And do you think, obviously it's so important for Labour to look forward now, not constantly be sort of raking over the past, but I suppose in the election of Keir Starmer, the Labour Party has, has made a clear attempt to move on. But do you think there has to be a kind of assessment of, of what went before, of, of why Labour lost in the way that they lost? Or did, did the leadership election sort of sort that out by proxy? Um, I think, yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I think in 2017, we probably weren't, well, we definitely weren't reflective enough on why we didn't win because everyone was too busy <laughs> pretending that we had one. Um, so I think there's, de- there's always a need to be, to rather than just say, right, we've got a new leader. That's obviously not sufficient just because we changed the man at the top. And, you know, it is always just changing the man at the top. Um, are we, you know, is that, is that going to be enough? Um, we need to we need to think more deeply about that. And there has been there have been reviews and there's been lots of there's been lots of debate. And I think that needs to be ongoing. And, you know, it's been really frustrating because of COVID that we've just not been able to get out there. And, you know, in ordinary times, I'd be out knocking on doors and, and talking to people about exactly what they think. And it's so frustrating not being able to do that. So we can't really get a grip of of how the country are feeling at the moment. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a mix, really, of facing up to the issues that run far beyond just Jeremy and to pretend that it was just Jeremy is completely uh, disingenuous because we've not won an election since 2005. I've never voted in a general election that we've won. Oh no. my God. <laughs> because of your age, not because you were yeah. completely disillusioned. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, not because I was, yeah, <laughs> I was abstaining. <laughs> God, how depressing. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, because I'm 37, so I've, I was able to vote for Labour government a couple of times in 2001 yeah. and 2005. But I'd never thought, I mean, you're only a couple of years younger than me. Yeah. That's think. incredible. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I missed, yeah, just missed 2005. Um, and you kind of think, well, we had, you know, five years of air. And it, just, it goes by in a flash, doesn't it? And suddenly we're in opposition for 10 years. We're going to be in opposition for 15 um and you know all those missed opportunities what the you know the damage the country's done in the meantime we've you know we've not got we've not got any more time to waste on getting this right um we have to be completely honest about everywhere we went wrong and you know those seats that we lost badly in 2019 have been on the decline for many years now pre jeremy pre ed um and um you know we need to be honest about why and and about the reality about what we need to do to address that um there's also loads of seats where we nearly lost you know we have to be honest as well about the fact that we're not this wasn't rock bottom we could still get we could still lose more you know there's plenty of seats that we've only got a thousand majority or less so um yeah there's no complacency we cannot just think that again just changing the man at the top will will reverse our fortune Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. One of the things you've not been able to do, as well as campaign because of COVID, you know, Keir took over without a kind of leadership conference that a new leader would ordinarily yeah. get. We're in September now, which would be party conference season, where you'd get those sort of big media hits where you have the new leader in front of a, well, it's the Labour Party, so sort of half-adoring crowd at least. <laughs> um, it feels weird that he hasn't been given that, I suppose he gets it at some point, and maybe the way things have gone, it's been a better introduction for him to the public, but... It is odd to have a new party leader and not to have had that kind of big jazzy announcement. Yeah, big fan. I know he had to do his like acceptance speech in his living room. Yeah. Didn't he? <laughs> it, was, it was. I felt so sorry for him. Um, but yeah, exactly. We would have had the big, you know, big leadership um, sort of vision, if you like, set, uh, setting out conference yeah. and and the whole uh, package around it, introducing the whole uh, of the shadow cabinet. I think you know the top team hasn't really been introduced to the to the public yet either. Because, you know, it's been Jonathan Ashworth and it's been Rachel Reeves and it's been um, Kate Green as, as Shadow Education Secretary, rightly. Um, but it means that everything has been really, really focused and, um, and the public just haven't got to know him yet. I think they are getting there and, and you know, the polls, are, the polls are closing the more that they, they do know him. Um, they do, I think they like, they like him the more they see of him. But, yeah, undeniably, the, those opportunities have been limited. So we're having to be more um, inventive in, in how that happens with his call care at zoom town halls um i think people are, i mean i never i'm doing this with you over zoom matt because i like you but i never <laughs> want to look at zoom ever again so sick of it <laughs> it's a weird way to interact like i think for podcasts and things it's fine but if you're having to work on it a lot as a politician i imagine it does your head in yeah i mean there's only so much you can do you can do like 80 percent of the work virtually um but you've got to do the politics in person you've got to get to know each other and you know i feel so sorry for those mps that were elected for the first time in december because they had like a couple of months in parliament and then they've been in their homes they've not been able to get onto their constituencies they've not been able to get to know each other or get to know the staff of the party or anything like to that get shit faced like, in all those bars where the beer's cheap really important you know they've not had the freshers experience of being an mp <laughs> Was that what it was like for you? Did it feel like Freshers' Week when you first got elected? Oh, it's the whole thing is like being, it's, I don't like a cross between being at university and school. So I'm in my, what am I now? I'm in my third year. And you do hang out with like, you hang out with your intake. You have, that's like your year group. Yeah. So all my mates are in my year group, my 2015 intake. And like, I sort of give sage advice to the second and first years. <laughs> okay, it's so weird. Me. What's, what's odd? And I totally get what you mean, but to people who perhaps haven't worked in politics or, or seen it up close, is they just think perhaps all MPs are powerful people, you know, but there are hierarchies and it's not just about who holds what office, but it is about length of service. And new yeah, MPs can feel overwhelmed by it. I mean, were, were there people that were particularly nice to you when you first, or indeed not very nice when you first got elected? Um, so I remember Harriet Harman when we, when we were all elected and she said, you know, you're not, you, you're all MPs now, you're not apprentice MPs. And that's I, like, that is really, really good advice. And I never really forgot that because you do feel like 
you just get in there and you've you're learning from other people and and you've got to you know, even just finding your way around parliament is so complicated um and finding somewhere to live in london and finding an office to set up in, in your constituency and employing loads of people when you've never perhaps employed people before so you've got so much to learn but you are an mp from day one so you've got to start representing your constituents from day one so there's no time to be an apprentice and uh, the public don't give you any time no. either they have rightly expectations of you from day one um yeah i mean it can be it can be quite a cliquey uh of course a factional place so yeah there were people that weren't particularly nice to me when i was first elected. <laughs> not naming any names but, but labor people <laughs> Oh yeah, they're the worst. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I knew the answer, but oh man! But hopefully, that didn't affect you too badly. No, no, no. And you know, like you know, there's times there's times when it's harder, and and you know, like we were we went straight into a leadership election as well. You know, the second after the general election, like the 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 different candidates are lobbying, and then you kind of watch very closely about who who you're who you're backing and then which faction that puts you into and then rival factions you know will but but that I, yeah in internal elections that's always at its worst things are pretty things are pretty good at the moment i would say things are about as settled as they've been since i was first elected and that's saying a lot even though it's only been five years um <laughs> as we said it would be conference week are you one of those politicians who likes party conferences or or not um i do I like party conference? Um, <laughs> I think um, I, I enjoy, I, I really enjoy the um, like the fringe debates and the policy debates. Some of them are really interesting and, and I'm doing a really, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to one that we're doing on the virtual conference uh, in a couple of weeks around the legacy of Mo Molum and uh, with the Labour Rights Society and Labour Women's Network, kind of exploring her contributions to the Good Friday Agreement bringing women into the peace process um, and their involvement um, in securing the peace since. So, you know, there are some really interesting conversations uh, that go on um, at, the, at the sides. Um, I've, never I've never actually been to conference as a, as a delegate, um, but I do marvel at their ability to sit in that conference hall for like 12 hours a day, day in, day out, um, listening to things that don't seem to like the, the, like when they have the you know they have a policy debate on like local government and then they end up talking about Palestine and I've just never you know like they never that may, that it never may seems change. to have any bearing <laughs> it never seems to have any bearing on the subject so I've always I've always marvelled at that um, so yeah mi mixed feelings to conference it's always a bit of a slog isn't it. You love yeah. conference. I absolutely love it. And I, I, it'd be nice to be able to go <laughs> what again. What do you with love a, about it? Well, it's a bit of a, a, particularly now that I don't work there. Yes, yeah, so you just, get to see everyone. Yeah, I can sort of drink a bit more than I, even though back then I did drink a fair bit. But it's, yeah, you get to see everyone, get to see old colleagues, you, make, you get to make new friends. You just sort of feel, I felt like on an intellectual level, it was quite good because there's lots of yeah. different things you can go and listen to. And it kind of just, yeah. I always found it really motivating when I worked for, the party that I always sort of went away kind of a bit more I guess my faith had been slightly renewed a bit depending on who the leader was but like in the good days I was left thinking oh this is great you know and, it brings um, you back to the sense of purpose doesn't it and you know yeah, I, I exploring what all the, all the different kind of yeah yeah I mean it's all up to you because I mean I see all these people all the time so I'm not bothered about <laughs> 
And when it's by the seaside, it's even better. That's nice. Yeah, I do like going down to Brighton. I don't mind that. But I tend to just, when that's the case, I just slope off when I can. <laughs> Hang out in Brighton. Well, where's it going to be next year? Cause was, was it going I think to be it's in Liverpool for quite a few years now. I think we're there for, for quite a few years in a row now. But Liverpool's really cool. Oh, it's a great place to be. I always enjoyed the yeah. Manchester ones were my favourite, actually, because being in a really big city actually makes it easier to then just disappear off because Brighton's quite yeah. small. <laughs> you can get caught more easily. Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you can just go off. You can go off in like Liverpool or Manchester. You can go somewhere far away if you just need to not be around. Yeah, and the nerds or drink something other than warm white wine. And, and dry Marks and Spencer sandwiches that are <laughs> curling in the corner of some... Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm very ple- I've given up alcohol for September. So oh, wow. I'm very, yeah, I'm very pleased that conference isn't, isn't happening because it would have been very difficult to avoid. So this, what's the date today? The 11th of September, so 11 days in. Do you feel the benefit? Yeah. I do, I do. You know, it was totally necessary, but I drank a bit too much during lockdown and ate <laughs> way too much. So when, um, when Parliament returned last week, I genuinely couldn't fit into most of my work clothes. So, so I was like, right, we need to do something drastic. So I'm just eating like powder diet food and drinking water for September. It was utterly joyless. That's good. Yeah, I mean, well, no, it's not it will fun. be in the end. <laughs> it's, it's boring, but you know, it's, uh, it's good for the mind, isn't it? Good for the body and mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you still shielding? Well, sort of. I'm, I kind of, I'm still very careful about where I go. I can, I can leave the house now, which I couldn't before. Yeah. I make sure I, I nip out at least once a day for a walk, but I I'm not really going places. I, would, I haven't no. used public transport or anything like that. I think I'd still feel a bit. No, that is wary. actually. I think public transport is feels the most uncomfortable. Actually, it's the hardest hardest to navigate safely, especially the tube. Yeah, I wouldn't want to get on the tube. So I've kind of I've done a couple of bits and bobs with work and things, but really I'm kind of still really timid in terms of doing like live performances of comedy and stuff. I, yeah. I I don't know. I just can't see it happening anytime soon. No, no. Did you keep active then when you were shielding? You doing like yep. exercise in the house? Yeah, I bought an exercise bike, which you'll be yeah. able to see on my Zoom there. Oh, yeah, there it is. So I do an hour and a half on that five days a week. Flipping out, that's good. Yeah, I drop loads of weight. So actually, I've kind of wow. Yeah, I've been really healthy. Not to not to shame you. That's a you're a complete <laughs> anomaly. I know. Danny who works for me. He was like in lockdown up in the Lake District and every time he kept, came on a Zoom he was looking more tanned and more uh, fit yeah. <laughs> that was, I was just getting fatter and fatter <laughs> <laughs> but I think most people have put on weight haven't they during lockdown like yeah that's, that's yeah. The, because obviously I haven't been able to move as much so for most people it's been and drink helped yeah and I was just people. eating I was just eating everything in the house <laughs> panic buying every week and then eating all that <laughs> <laughs> um so uh, even though you've only been an MP for five years, you're now part of, there seems to be a new breed of Northern Labour women in like prominent positions. So you, Angela Rayner, obviously Rebecca Long-Bailey for a bit, Lisa Nandy, Bridget Phillipson, Jess Phillips is sort of Northern, West Midlands. Well, be careful there. Holly Walker. Know for Lynch. well the North doesn't start till Yorkshire. Matthew. I know, but but we get. I'm from Nottingham. I'm from the Midlands, so we kind of. Even though I'm very proud of having a distinct East Midlands identity, we kind of feel like we've got more in common. You self-identify as Northern, yeah, yeah. This kind of this that. is a row because my mum's from Chesterfield, so I don't count her as a Northerner. This is a row, you know. This is very oh, I'd count Chesterfield. Row. I'd count Chesterfield as the North. <laughs> it's 
the Midlands. It's technically the East Midlands. No, I know what you mean, but the identity is more northern. Yeah, but yeah, okay. So you mean what you mean is kind of normal. You don't just mean northern. (laughs) Well, I mean north of (laughs) London, kind of north of yeah, north of Peterborough. Yeah, yeah. There seems to be more prominent northern Labour women now. I don't know whether that's just I've noticed it more. No, I think you're right. I think as well a lot of us. Well, it's not been true in the past. Although you might have had lots of people representing northern seats you wouldn't they wouldn't have been from from their seats and actually pretty much all the people you've listed there i think are from their constituencies or very very close yeah um and i think that's actually a bit of a change in the last few years um i think probably part of it is because we've had more all women shortlists and so constituencies have been selecting local women uh and uh yeah and i think yeah that's that's all all for the good isn't it i mean the shadow cabinet's more, I think it's either gender balanced or there's actually more women in it than men for the first time ever. Um, and uh, yeah, more more different voices at the at the top table as well, different perspectives um, from around the country, but from different backgrounds. Um, and uh, it just, I think, I think that's probably part of the reason why it, th- it feels more collegiate and a bit more, um, a bit more intellectually rigorous. Um, you, like, we're just able to have those debates. Uh, behind the scenes that I don't feel were necessarily happening before. If they were, they just weren't, they weren't including me. Because you were shadow policing minister, and which was highly relevant because you'd been a special constable for a couple of mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. So what made you want to do that? Be a special constable? Yeah. Um, not be so, shadow policing minister. Be, <laughs> no, I did want to be shadow Why policing minister. Why on earth well. would you want to be shadow <laughs> policing minister? <laughs> um, well, I wanted to join the police. So I nearly joined the army when I left uni. Whoa. Um, I graduated in 2008 when the financial crash hit and like there were no jobs anywhere. Um, like, like literally the year before, everyone was applying to graduate schemes and there were, you know, you could, you could walk into a job straight away, but then they all closed, even kind of internship schemes and things that were available. There just wasn't anything. And the army came around recruiting and there's something, I don't know, I've always been very attracted to like institutions and there's something very attractive about the army and the police and like rules. Yeah. Just being very clear about what to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've only, I had my place booked at Sandhurst. Wow. Um, so yeah. So, so would I you, was going to. Would you have been there at the same, oh no, that would have been after Dan Jarvis. And yeah. And like I wasn't, that. yeah, I was going to be a paratrooper. <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> Well, I don't, do they have women in the parrot? I don't, I don't know. I don't know, but you're, if you go to Sanders, you're pretty hard, whatever you end up doing, aren't you? Yeah. So, um, so, so why yeah, not Sanders so, then? Why didn't you do so it? Then, so, um, so then I, uh, so actually it was, um, it was actually a Nottingham MP, Graham Allen. He, because I did politics at Nottingham University. Nottingham North. Yeah. And uh, he, some, it was sent an email around the politics department um, that he was offering a, a researcher job and he always offered it to a politics graduate from Nottingham. Okay. And it was after I'd gone through the, like, the application course and everything like that. And as I say, my, my place was booked. But I just thought, oh, well, I'll apply to that. I didn't, I'd never, I don't think I'd ever met an MP before. Um, but I thought I'd, you know, I'd apply. And then, yeah, I got that, got that job. And, and so came down to, came down to London. So worked in Parliament for that couple of years um and then and then went on after that to work uh aviva and in the city but it was in that period then i decided i thought maybe maybe i might want to join the police 
uh, being attracted to institutions and hierarchy. <laughs> um, and so I thought I'd give it a try and be a, be a special constable. And I was a special constable in Brixton um between 2009 2012 which was fascinating it was really funny when i was shadow police minister because i'd go and do visits and they'd be like all right then we'll take you down um you know we'll take down this this estate you won't have seen anything like this before and i'd just sort of yeah well you know one of my first stop and searches we found a submachine gun on a 13 year old lad so um (laughs) um i think you know (laughs) we've seen plenty in brixton and it was it was an amazing experience and saw things that obviously you'd never seen any other uh, other walk of life um and i loved it it was it was a shame i kind of had to give it up when i did and how how does being a special constable work like can you pick your hours like what, what are you sort of bound by yeah, you just have to do 16 hours a month. Um, so I would do um, every other Friday night. I'd work and then I'd be... Friday up. night? Yeah. Oh, take <laughs> yeah. Sunday afternoon, man. Make it easy on yourself. Well, you never know what's going to happen at the end of a shift. So you might arrest someone really near an end of a shift. So, I would, so I'd go... I'd be at Brixton... Uh, I'd start Clapham, Clapham Police Station at 6 o'clock on a Friday. And then you'd, you'd do... Uh, you're meant to do eight hours. But if you arrest someone near the end of that then you could be in the station with them or, you know, in A&E with them for another, another six hours. So then you're not going to bed sometimes till like midday on Saturday. So then you need to catch up on your sleep before you go back to work again. And how does it, how does it work? Like what powers do you have as a special? And, and, and do you have to be like supervised by more than one police officer at any one time? Like it's quite a mad, yeah, it's quite a mad. So special constables have exactly the same powers as a police officer. You're a warranted officer um but you just do it for free it's for some, i don't know i can't explain why i did it um other than just sort of pure interest and uh, uh like uniforms um uh but yeah it's pcso's that uh don't have the same powers as police officers um but are paid staff um and uh yeah i, I mean you go out with other special constables uh, and you have ranks in the same way i had a special sergeant and an inspector but they very quickly try and get you onto independent patrolling status. You know, you have, you have to do certain things in order to get that, but they want you out as quickly as possible on your own. So you'll see, and you won't, you won't be able to distinguish them necessarily from normal police officers. The police officers on your streets will, will quite often be volunteer officers just doing it out of, you know, love of community service, wanting to, wanting to support their local neighbourhoods. So the, the, there's not like a different you know badge on the on the epaulet there is literally just an like, s in front of your in front of your um, officer number that's it you don't wear a different uniform or anything like that you've just you've got a warrant card you've got carry handcuffs carry sea spray carry a bat on i mean it sounds terrifying <laughs> was it scary it's, do you know what it's um what, when you have the uniform on and you've got you've got your stab vest on and everything you know it's you feel you feel a sense of protection by that but of course it's of course it's scary it's scary doing a stop and search because you never know what someone's going to have on them even even you know even if you're not worried they're going to attack you if they've got a, a needle in their pocket or something like that, that that could pierce you or and you never know how people are going to how, how people are going to react but it did actually it, it it's actually helped me as a, a politician because as soon as you put the uniform on you know they're not being personal against you or attacking you and that's always helped me as a politician actually remembering that they're not necessarily attacking you they're attacking the institution or they're attacking the party or attacking being a politician i mean actually it doesn't the analogy doesn't completely bear right because sometimes they, they are just attacking me <laughs> they just don't like me it's some of it is personal it's yeah, yeah. Um, but i mean imagine 
obviously your dream job would be prime minister, but what a home secretary you'd be with that experience. <laughs> it was really funny when, because uh, Saji Javid was the home secretary uh, when, uh, when I was, I was shadow police minister, he used to go around boasting that his brother was a police officer as if that somehow gave him <laughs> qualifications by osmosis <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah i don't think there's ever there's ever been there's don't i don't think there's ever been a shadow police minister or police minister or anybody that's actually served it's weird you get a lot of ex-army people don't you being yeah. in politics a lot of ex-army officers on both sides james but cleverly very, very rarely yeah tom tuganat dan jarvis uh johnny mercer yeah bob stewart uh ben wallace um yeah all sorts um but you very very rarely get police officers going into politics and i don't know i don't really know why because the same kind of impartiality rules apply yeah. to the army um i think i think for the police it's generally and traditionally much more a lifelong career so they don't then go into it afterwards whereas for the army and particularly for officer class i think maybe that's the difference that they see themselves as leaders so there is, you know, there is that sliding doors moment where you either go to Sandhurst or, or work for Graham Allen, the then MP for Nottingham <laughs> North. Like, do you think you'd have always ended up in politics? I, I know you had trade union in your, in your family heritage. Do you think you'd have always ended up in Parliament? I don't, well, I don't, yeah, it's funny because I didn't, I didn't ever expect or think of running to be an MP because I'd left, I'd left home at 18 and gone to uni and then I'd moved to, down to London and I was, I lived in London for quite a long time after uni and I knew I'd only ever even contemplate representing my home city. And I just didn't think that would ever be a possibility. Um, I didn't necessarily envisage moving home. Um, I thought, I, I assumed my career would be, you know, would stay in London. So I just didn't think there would ever be a, a, a chance um, to represent Sheffield and, and and with kind of um, tradition seats that are traditionally seen as as Labour, they're often kind of stitched up yeah. <laughs> for, for for local people. So I, I genuinely didn't ever believe there would be an opportunity. But in 2014, my predecessor Meg Munn kind of um, uh, stood down completely unexpectedly, and there was there was a vacancy, and it was my union that ran me up and said, "Do you do you fancy going for it? Do you you know do you, what do you think?" And I was like, no, nah, don't be daft. And I was 26 as well at the time. So I just thought, there's no, there's no chance. I don't have a cat and L's chance of winning. And they were like, well, go on, just for the experience. Why don't you go for it? Um, and then seven weeks later, I was like, all oh, right, um, I've got to give up my job. <laughs> I'm going to stand for election now. So it was a total whirlwind. So it was, um, yeah, it was, it, it, that all came as a, a total shock and it was never something I planned for. Um, and I get asked loads to sort of give speeches or, or give advice to women who want to stand for politics about how I did it and I was sort of quite glibly so I was just in the right place at the right time but that's not necessarily that easy to be is it and I think for women in particular being able to be in the right place at the right time and make yourself available to do that is something that they often struggle with more than men for caring responsibilities um, or, or either of family members or, or children um one way or another it's that's that's much harder and that's part of the reason why it's it's harder for women to break into politics i was able to do it because i didn't have any children didn't have any other caring responsibilities it was interesting when i went for selection as well you know i was asked over and over again if i had children if i wanted to have children um and i just sort of used to smile and say it's funny i just don't think you'd be asking a 26 year old bloke in this in this 
situation because it wouldn't have ever crossed their minds to do that. And you can't really win either because some of them obviously wanted me to have children so I understood family and others didn't because they didn't want me to be distracted from the job. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's just yet another barrier for women entering, entering party politics. We began talking about um, Northern Ireland uh, and regarding Brexit. And, and this week at Prime Minister's Questions, Keir Starmer didn't mention Brexit at all. And Beth Rigby wrote a great piece um, about how he's sort of depriving Boris of the opportunity to frame Labour as kind of Ramoniacs or whatever word he'd use. You know, sure. I mean, with Brexit now, Labour feels like it's saying, look, Brexit's happening. There's no point kind of re-arguing it. Yeah. We're kind of moving on from it, I guess. No, definitely. And, um, you know, Keir's very clear, like any arguments over leave and remain are over. We're not interested in reopening that. We totally accept uh, the British people vote to get Brexit done. That was the one thing that was that was absolutely promised to them last December. And that's why, again, going back to the conversation we had at the start, that the Tories approach now is so frustrating because it doesn't get Brexit done at all. It prolongs things. It reopens negotiations um, completely needlessly and recklessly. And the British public, I think, will just be really weary of seeing it back in the headlines again um, and seeing the same arguments being played out when they were told that the matter was settled and that we could get on dealing with other things. And, you know, since last December, when we were told that we could get it done and get and, and crack on with, with things that matter to people, we've had COVID to deal with. So why on earth would we be reopening Brexit when we've got challenges that we could have never have possibly foreseen? And that are so huge um, to to overcome. Why would we be putting any more challenges in our way? There are, uh, I suppose, it's quite hard to get a sense actually of where the party is without having the conference, without having you know all that face to face contact you'd ordinarily have without COVID. But there will be a hard core of Labour people that are, you know, identify as Europeans and want Labour at some point to commit to a, a referendum to rejoin. You know, even if it's in thirty years. Um, are they likely to be a sort of troublesome vocal minority or do you think the Labour movement in general and the party is kind of in agreement with the leadership that actually whatever we would like to happen, it's not going to happen in the short term? I think so. I mean, it, as you say, it's difficult to get a real grip on it, but it's certainly not something that's that's um, dominated my um, inbox. And I've been having regular Zoom meetings with my members throughout. It's really not something that's coming up. I think, you know, people feel that the matter has been settled uh, and that there are that there, there are other issues that we have to come you know get to grips with in in the meantime there is absolutely no point um inflicting ourselves inflicting that that battle on ourselves again so it feels it feels pretty uh, united on that front um sorry to end on such a serious note but you studied <laughs> in nottingham for 3 years um which bars did you go to when you when you studied in nottingham um, I went to what? Well, I went to like Rock City and Stealth. Yeah. Um, Stealth's hardcore. Really... <laughs> yeah. Bloody I hell! Was, I was quite like grungy at university. Um, where else did you go? Uh, God, I can't remember. Where do you go? Um, well, I go to like the old man pubs, like the Cross Keys, the Bell, the the old. What's trip that to... one on the? Oh yeah, to I was going to say the old trip to Jerusalem. That's really good. What's that one on the canal? That's really nice. It's got like the boat in it. Oh, the canal house, yeah, where the canal is in the pub. That That's sense. brilliant. Yeah. And all those yeah. down there are nice. Fellows yeah. Morton and Clayton and the um, Via Fossa. Yeah, the waterfront. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're all nice. I've so not been back to Nottingham for ages. The old Angel. Did you used to go there? That was like a rock pub. That was like the sort of pre-rock city. One, yeah, possibly. for the rockers, that was that was yeah. like the place to go. Mm. 
What's the link? I don't remember that one. Um, no, I've not been back for ages. I worked, I worked in... Are you a Forest fan? Yes. I worked in Nottingham Forest. Did you? Oh, what yeah. doing? Is that why you got red hair? <laughs> I worked in the box at Nottingham Forest. There was a waitress. No, so what? So, in, in the executive box behind the glass or in the director's box that's sort of out in the, in the, in the Yeah, in the corporate box behind the glass. Oh, what was that like? It, well, it was just full of like corporates that you know would would um, would uh, obviously because of the corporate box yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that would um, just come in and get drunk and not even watch the football. Do you know what I mean? Like they were just oh, coming for the for the day out. So it was yeah. But I'm a Barnsley fan, so we oh, hate Nottingham Forest. And you st- well, you knocked us out the League Cup last weekend, and you stopped us getting promoted at the end of last season. Although it was quite nice that you stayed up as a result of that, so that was less <laughs> yeah. ha- less hard to take. But did you meet any? You must have met some legends then, or were you not that bothered about? forest legends no honestly it was just like drunk businessmen and were they nice <laughs> to work for yeah yeah it was a nice, i mean it was just i was just a i was just a barmaid and a waitress yeah but at, the, I mean, but at the greatest venue on earth <laughs> you got some uh, nottingham forest <laughs> i'm so jealous really? yeah <laughs> oh man no i mean yeah i mean the bar manager was perfectly nice yeah <laughs> it was fine oh man i'm, I'm kind of um Gutted that you haven't got like stories about meeting Stuart oh, Pierce and people. Sorry, like I'll go away and think of some and come back next time and tell you some. <laughs> but I mean, what you're saying is it was, it was a more rewarding experience than being a member of parliament. It was probably the formative. <laughs> yeah, that was the highlight of my life. Things have only been downhill since then. And because you, you're, the, you're on the women's football team, are you, are, you, are you good at football? I wouldn't. Good is a. You're playing real fast and loose with that um, with that word. Um, I played. I did play for uni. I did play for my university. Um, but I'm, as I've said, I'm hopelessly unfit. So I'm not bad. I'm just really unfit. <laughs> just going goal. Yeah, I play. I play on the right wing. But Ooh. yeah, I, I know exactly. I'm trying not to make that too known. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Thank God you haven't mentioned it on a podcast. Exactly. <laughs> millions of people listen to. Millions um, of people listen to you. If you add them all up, you know, <laughs> an old new Labour triple accounting trick from the good old days. Um, Louise, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming Likewise. on. Likewise. Thanks for having me on. Well, there you go, Louise Haig. I I'm still can't make up my mind whether I'm more impressed that she was going to enrol in Santos or had been offered a place, was a special constable. The thing is... I. Special Constable is one of those things. I see them advertised on, on the tube uh, from time to time. And I know it's not the same as a PCSO, but I, I'm all, I should have just Googled it out of curiosity before now. But I didn't. I wasn't really aware that they had the sorts of powers that they have. Um, so it's just incredible um, that, that Louise did that for a couple of years. What an amazing way to serve your community and to serve your country. Um, worked for Nottingham Forest. Oh, man. It doesn't sound like it was the sort of experience that I hoped. But <laughs> you could have loads of anecdotes about legends. But no, it was just drunk blokes who didn't want to watch the football. So uh, I guess that's what happens if you work in the, the corporate end of, uh, of the football industry. But so much brilliant stuff in that interview. Um, just about, I suppose, where Labour is now and where Labour's heading. You know, and you get the sense that Labour has become a far more professional outfit, even in the short space of time since the the change in leadership. But also that need for Labour to really assess where it is, that a a change of leader in itself may be a positive change, but there's still a job of work to be done regarding the party, um, not just the person at the top of it. So there you go. And um, yes, pre-order the book from Blackwells if you'd like a signed copy. 
Um, maybe you don't. Maybe you would re- prefer to have a, a more valuable unsigned copy, in which case you can buy it at Waterstones, Amazon, and all the usual places. And if you prefer an audio book, and if you're listening to this, maybe you would. Um, I've recorded that. And uh, yes, um, thank you to those of you that have already tweeted me about Spitting Image. Um, it's just such a cool thing to be working on. So I'm telling everyone, um, because obviously it's like, that's like being asked to play for Forest. Um, uh, if not work in the corporate boxes there so there we are have a wonderful weekend um, and I, when I say I hope this finds you well I really mean it wherever you are whatever you're doing um, whatever circumstance you find yourself in I hope that these podcasts help uh, inform uh, entertain and educate as um, as an institution once said so I'll see you soon oh and please one last thing if you could leave an iTunes review and I know I say this every week and it must get on your nerves particularly if you have left one it just really helps. And if you could make it a positive iTunes review, I mean, far from me, a former political staffer, to suggest what you should say or do. But, um, you know, a positive one would help. Have a great weekend. ta Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.